a Podcast One production. In a time of need, our customers were saying, you know, we need this service seven days a week. We made it happen. You know, we're not going to roll back on that. It's been amazing for our business. And one of the great learnings that I hope we carry forward and don't forget is how quickly you can implement change in a business if you really need to. You don't need to agonise over the detail. And it's a real lesson in progress over perfection. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. We're chasing down the most successful female entrepreneurs from around the globe, not only to hear their life story, but to extract their knowledge and world-class insights. If you're curious and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for some hard-hitting truths, a dose of inspo, and learnings you can apply right away. Strap in. In 2015, the thought of sending flowers through the mail was slightly crazy. Who on earth would want to take this on? Well, Hannah Spilver and her co-founder Verity Tuck, they decided that was the challenge they wanted to meet. And thus, Lovely was born. A same-day flower delivery business with an entire bunch of personality. This interview was great. Hannah outlined how having a clear purpose, that thing that drives you to your core, is critical when times get tough. She shared why surrounding yourself with good people will help you go further, faster. And she let us in on the impact COVID has had on the business, navigating 500% growth in just one month and the quick decisions she had to make in order for the business to survive. We kick off the chat learning how Hannah started with nothing but a business name and a purpose to spread joy. So we wanted to go back. We want to um, talk to you about those early days when you thought that you saw a gap in the market. What was your process like of sizing up the competition and you know, defining what your unique um, selling point was in those early days? I'd probably start by saying it was our approach was nowhere near as considered <laughs> and rigorous as it potentially should have been. I think... Looking back, so we started Lovely five years ago now and Lovely is a direct-to-consumer flower and gift delivery business. So we deliver same day across Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide and Brisbane and next day nationwide. But I think all of the things that you learn over the years building a business that a business plan should be about, so total addressable market, opportunity, understanding your customer, all of those things that you learn to realise are really important were pretty much completely lacking uh, in the early days. So Lovely came from a place, I would say, um, of purpose. And it was really about building a brand and business that would create some happiness in the world and, and make people's day. So Lovely was really a brand-led idea in the beginning. I had always been passionate about building brands. I worked in advertising for 10 years prior to starting Lovely. And I had a bit of a PowerPoint graveyard, I'd call it, on my desktop of, of, brand, <laughs> of brands, brand ideas and business ideas mm-hmm. that I'd accumulated over the years. And Lovely uh, was a brand identity and a name and, and a purpose that I'd actually developed for uh, somebody else that I knew who was starting a business. And they didn't use the name and the idea, but it was it was something that I just couldn't let go. It was something, it was It was a name and a brand identity that I felt really passionate about and excited about. I kept waking up in the middle of the night um, and adding more meat to the, the bones around what this brand could be about and how we could bring to life this idea of a business that would create happiness and make people's day. And 
as luck would have it, at the time I was working with Verity, who's now my business partner. We were working in an advertising agency together and we were both really restless in our careers. We both had ambitions to start our own company, but we didn't really know what that company was going to be. And we were at a time in our lives where we were living away from friends and family. I'm from the UK. I was living in Sydney. I was incredibly homesick. And I was looking for ways to connect with friends and family back home, to let them know I was thinking about them, to let them know I was missing them. And Verity was doing something very similar. Her family were back in Melbourne. And we identified this gap in the market for last-minute, simple, affordable and fun gifts that you could send to people that mattered to you. And I think it was the combination of those things that really created momentum behind the the idea itself. It wasn't one light bulb moment. It was a series of things that both um, Verity and I were experiencing in our personal lives. There were restlessness with our careers, this obsession with brand that I had um, and this, this, this business name that I'd kind of dreamt up that I wanted to do something with. And Verity really wanted to do something creative with flowers. Neither one of us had something, had, had experience in, in floristry, but flowers seemed to perfectly fit this idea of connecting with loved ones, sending something last minute. It certainly laddered up to this brand purpose of helping make people's day. The name, the business name Lovely seemed like it was, you know, it was made for the product range that we were kind of, you know, piece by piece putting together. And it just built momentum from there. But at, but at that stage, we had absolutely no idea about the category we were entering into. We didn't really understand the challenges that lay ahead of us in terms of same-day logistics. But it was a it was a idea that came from a place of of heart, I guess, and meaning. And that that purpose behind the brand has been the driving force behind everything we've done over the last five years and still remains as relevant today uh, as it was back then. We want to dive into the logistics in a sec, but I just wanted to ask a question off the back of that because you said at the beginning, you know, you didn't have a business plan, you didn't really know the category, you just had a really clear idea about the brand that you wanted to build. And I think this is interesting because one of the things we hear all the time with women in our community who are looking to start a business is like, oh, I need a business plan. Like, I need a business plan. And it, need, it seems to be such a roadblock for people to actually just take action and start. So I'm curious, how rigorous do you think that people should be in the beginning? Like, do you think people need to really think through every single part of their business or is it more of a case of what you did, which is just like throw something against the wall and, and, and see what happens? Well, I think that we're we're living proof that you certainly don't need a rigorous business plan yeah. <laughs> to build something from scratch. Uh, but I think it's different for everybody. Certainly having a business plan isn't the wrong thing to do. And in hindsight, it probably would have given us the opportunity to go into the lovely journey with a lot less naivety and a better understanding of some of the challenges we were going to face. But I think sometimes you can get so hung up on having a concrete business plan that it actually does become an obstacle in itself. In the yeah. early days of running a business, the most critical thing is momentum. And it's all about progress over perfection. And I think probably the problem at times with this obsession with having a finely tuned business plan is that you're trying to make something so perfect and polish it so much that you actually just never get started. 
So in our case, and that maybe that's just the people we are and the way that we approached it, it's not right for everybody, but for us, the idea of just, you know, throwing something at the wall, seeing if it sticks, understanding if we can get product market fit, that was more important to us before kind of, you know, really putting the numbers and the metrics and, and the modelling against what we were trying to do long term. So it, wor- it worked for us. I wanted to ask about um, purpose and being a brand-led you know, brand, which we love. We're brand, we're brand brains, um, but we're also very purpose led. And, you know, that's really what drove us from the beginning. And, and, you know, Lady Brains has definitely evolved over the years. Do you think that, you know, to succeed uh, as a business these days or as a brand, that you have to be so super clear in what your vision is and what your purpose is and your identity? Or can you kind of, you know, uncover that throughout the journey? I think I think it really helps to have a clear purpose because I think for us, and look for every founder that I've ever spoken to, building a business is so fraught with challenges and stress. Having that purpose to keep coming back to time and time again in the middle of the night to be able to remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing and why it matters is actually often the difference between success and and failure because a lot of the time success is just about keeping going and a purpose is really critical in in helping you find that courage and conviction about why it's important to keep going down the path that you've decided to go down. So I think there are absolutely lots of businesses out there which I perceive as successful businesses I would have no idea about what their purpose is. It's certainly not a consumer-facing purpose, if there is one at all. So it's not the difference between success and failure all the time, but I think it certainly helps as a founder to be very, very clear on why it is you're doing what you're doing right from the get-go. And how long for you did that take to percolate? Because I think that is one of the hard, it's almost one of the <laughs> hardest things is like really figuring out what your own personal why is, but also, you know, your business purpose. Was that something that percolated over months or was it something that kind of, you know, yeah. was pretty clear from you for you from the get-go? I'd say it was probably the only thing that was clear for us <laughs> from the get-go. I think it was the one thing we did have figured out in That's a month. Good. You only need one thing, yeah, right? You one, need one thing figured you out. You need one yeah. thing to kind of hang your hat on and focus on. It was the one thing that we had absolute clarity and conviction around and it was all of the other things that, quite frankly, <laughs> we, had we, had no no idea. Idea. we had no bloody idea <laughs> no about. You know, plan, like, no idea. Yeah. No business plan. <laughs> I mean, legitimately, we, we it took us a while to figure out what was the product range we were actually going to put against this business and this brand, which was about making people's day, connecting loved ones. So the mm. purpose was absolutely there from the get-go and it was all of the other things like product, pricing strategy, customer, <laughs> market size that we figured out, you know, all of those things that are normally where people start were actually the things that we took longer to percolate and and really land on. Okay. I want to talk about pricing strategy because this is another thing that comes up a lot in conversations with women in our community who want to start product-based businesses. How did you approach this in the early days? How did you figure out if your logistics wasn't figured out and if your business model wasn't figured out, how did you, how did you decide how to price your products from the beginning and has that pricing evolved as you've, you know, built out the business model, I guess? <laughs> Our pricing strategy definitely needed to evolve, otherwise we wouldn't have a business today. Yeah. <laughs> so 
we we got our pricing strategy right by getting our pricing strategy wrong. Wrong, great. For a really long time. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think it's one of those cases of if we'd, you know, but actually looking back, we probably didn't get to the right, it probably didn't take us any longer to get to the right pricing strategy than had we agonised over it for weeks and months at a time, doing all the research and, and testing it out. For us, because we're in the digital space, we can evolve and change our product and our pricing strategy at breakneck speed if we need to. So for us, it was just about putting putting you know product and price out there seeing what worked, seeing what didn't, very quickly understanding what the margins were. Did we have a profitable commercial business model underlying that? The answer in the early days was no. Okay, cool. How do we evolve our pricing strategy? It probably took us, I'd say, as long as two to three years to get that pricing strategy right. And you're always evolving your pricing strategy um, in line with how your product range evolves, how your service offering evolves, um, the speed at which you're delivering products to Customers requires different um, pricing strategies around that. So it's it's not really a case of getting it right and then that being the holy grail. It's it's about evolving that constantly over time. We're still learning about how to do those things. And so how do your customers respond to that? I mean, if your prices change, if they go up, is that ever a consideration about how your customer expectations yeah, absolutely. It's something that you have to actively manage in the business, how your consumers respond to changes, whether it's to changes in your price or your product or your service offering. We, we, as I said, we were able to make changes very quickly in the early days. So we were working from such a small base that a lot of the adjustments we made in the first sort of 12 months pretty much went unnoticed by customers anyway. And when they didn't go unnoticed, our approach was and still is to be completely transparent and upfront with our customers around why we're doing what we're doing. So I think there's a certain level of empathy from certainly that we've always experienced from our customers that if we say to them, we're we're doing something because the alternative is actually we just don't have a commercial business model. Mm. Then very quickly, consumers start to understand that if they like what you're putting out there and they want to use your service and they mm. see value in what you're doing, then they understand that there has to be, you know, sometimes adjustments to the prices that they're paying for those services. But I'd say that, you know, we've been pretty, we've, we've gotten to a consistent, stable place with our pricing over the last two, two to three years. So we haven't had to make any um, major adjustments to those, to those fundamentals. I want to talk logistics. <clears throat> you know, you said, you said, you know, if the customer's, like what you offer them, they come back for more. And you were one of the first Australian companies to offer same-day delivery. We Can were, you ta- yeah. Yeah, this is amazing because, I mean, it's not an easy thing to roll out. It isn't. And we are interested in, I guess, why you decided to do that um, and how you went about <laughs> logistically making this possible. Well, why we did it was because we it made sense from a consumer perspective. So as you know, consumers ourselves looking for gifts to send to friends and family last minute, it was an expectation that we had. So when I think there was definitely a degree of naivety for me from my perspective coming from the UK, same day logistics in the UK was a much more mature offering than it was over here in Australia. So I sort of definitely approached the logistics part of our business with a degree of ignorance and naivety Mm -hmm. and assumption that what was happening overseas 
would be readily available here in Australia. And actually, when we started to dig beneath the surface, it just wasn't. So we, quite frankly, were laughed at and turned away by I don't know how many logistics providers when we started to have conversations around the fact that we were looking for a partner to deliver things same day across Sydney and Melbourne. Um, it was a perishable product, so it needed to be handled with care during transit. We we couldn't find anybody that wanted to work with us. So I'd say it took about 18 months post-launching Lovely for the market to actually, for the logistics market to catch up with the service we were trying to put out there. So the only thing that we could do to bridge that gap over 18 months was to find a solution ourselves. Now, in the first six months, that was literally my business partner and I getting in our cars, mm-hmm. delivering gifts and flowers to people. It was the it was the epitome of a non-scalable solution <laughs> right. to the problem. Um, but we did have confidence that the market would catch up, and we knew that what we were doing was was you know only a short term solution to the problem. And then over time, we were able to hire drivers as as demand increased for our product, and sort of eighteen months. Into the journey, we were able to partner with a company who's still our logistics partner to this day and handles, certainly from a um, software and tech perspective, the management of all our deliveries. But we've, we've kind of come full circle because we now, we now have moved to a model where we hire all our own drivers and we use our logistics partner to kind of um, fill the, 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 the technical gap between right. our drivers and, and, our, and our website, essentially, so that they make sure that we're routing all our deliveries in the most efficient way. They handle all of the communications oh. between us and our drivers and our drivers and our customers. So we've, we've sort of come full circle over five years. I'm interested. Does that uh, cost the business more to have those logistics in-house or would it be more effective to outsource that? I think... For us, it's all about scale. So as we've grown, as we've grown over the years, and our sales volumes have increased substantially, mm. it's actually become more cost-effective for us to do okay. to do that in-house. And I think it's one of the interesting things about our business because when you look at the biggest competitors in this market, so if you if you look at an Interflora, for example, or a global flower delivery brand, they've dominated the market for a long time. But what they don't do is provide an end-to-end customer solution. Essentially, you know, order gatherers um, farm orders out to other providers and suppliers across Australia and across the world. And so what we have realised is by us doing things differently and building a business where we truly own every customer touch point, we're not passing orders off to people, we're managing customer service, we're managing the website experience, we've got florists who make the flowers, we've got our own drivers who deliver them. Actually, commercially, there is much more opportunity to make money at different parts of, of, of that experience. So when you stack our financials up and benchmark them against some of the big players in the market, although we've developed a more complex business model, mm-hmm. it's actually a more profitable business model. Okay, so I want to ask a question off the back of that because, um, you know, obviously you have same-day delivery in kind of, you know, the big cities around Australia, um, yep. Sydney, Melbourne, et cetera, but you also deliver everywhere else, other places. Mm. Yeah. Mm. How, how do you manage that if you own the experience end-to-end? Look, it's it's been a really difficult thing to get right and one of the biggest challenges in scaling our business when you're dealing with a perishable product is how can we get national reach. So how can we get our product out to people that live anywhere in Australia 
without having to fall back on the sort of traditional order gatherer business model that has dominated the market for so long. And I'll never forget a conversation we were having with one of our business advisors. This is probably, I don't know, we were maybe 18 months, two years into the lovely journey. And he was kind of challenging us on how are we going to build this business model so that we can get national reach without having a complicated network of third-party providers that we need to rely on across Mm. Australia to get the product out. And I think I just made a flippant remark about, just it'd be so much easier if we could just send the flowers through the mail. And Mm. he sort of, I remember him looking at me and saying, well, could you? Is that, is that, so ridiculous. Could you figure that out? And it was it was this sort of moment in time that sparked a series of events where we actually started to say to ourselves, well, maybe that isn't such a ridiculous thing to consider. Maybe we could actually look at the mainstream postal network as a facilitator for getting our product out to people. So what we then went about doing was some customer research to see how, how can we deconstruct our product in a way that makes it easier to send via the mail. So for anybody that's received a lovely product, one of our sort of trademark things about our experience is all our flowers come in a lovely branded glass jar, which you can personalise. And that's great because it means the flowers literally arrive in water, ready to sit on your desk, your doorstep, your kitchen table, whatever. Clearly, that poses an enormous challenge when you're looking at sending something through the mail because you've got flowers which are inherently delicate and perishable and they have a Mm -hmm. short shelf life. You've got a glass jar which can break during transit and it's full of water. So trifecta. This this sounds like a nightmare. It's the trifecta trifecta of problems. (laughs) So we engaged our customers and to help us solve this problem. And the first thing we sort of looked at was, well, okay, how do we how do we make this slightly less problematic? Can we get rid of the glass jar? Because if we get rid of the glass jar, it gets rid of the water. And our customers came back with a resounding, no, you can't get rid of the glass <laughs> jar. We love the glass jar. It's a USP. You can personalise them. It's got to stay. So what we actually did was we engaged with a series of experts around the world. We worked with uh, floristry experts in Holland who had developed a product which would keep flowers hydrated in transit for up to five days, but without water. So the first thing was, how do we keep the flowers alive if they're going to be in the mail? And working with these guys in Holland, we felt pretty confident that we'd found a good solution to that. The second thing was, how do we create packaging that's going to keep the flowers and the glass safe um, whilst it's being, you know, potentially thrown around in the mail. So we took inspiration from outside of our category because we're in, we're in gifting. We knew that unboxing experience was going to be really important. So we looked outside to other businesses and brands who did packaging really well. And you can't really, you can't really go through that exercise without looking at Apple and what they're doing and the experience of unboxing a new iPhone or a new laptop. So we did a lot of research around how, how they develop their packaging 
and I discovered there was such a thing as a box engineer, of which Apple employ many of. We <laughs> clearly couldn't. We, we couldn't afford to hire a box engineer, but I did find a cardboard <laughs> manufacturing company in Melbourne who hired a who had a box engineer. Really, and we oh, connected with them, and we literally had this sort of surreal meeting where we rocked up with fresh flowers in a glass jar in one hand and an iPhone box in the other. <laughs> And this scrappy little sketch that I'd put together saying, so we're kind of thinking about sending flowers through the mail and we really like the Apple unboxing experience. Can you create something for us that's going to work? And and they actually didn't laugh at us. They were really intrigued and engaged by the problem we were trying to solve. So they built us a prototype, um, a, a custom-made box that was... Uh, purpose-built to fit our products to keep them safe. And then we engaged a pretty small number of customers. So we worked with 20 customers across Australia to say, we are going to try creating a product that allows us to ship flowers through the mail. We've got no idea if it's going to work, but will you come on this journey with us? And we literally shipped flowers through the mail to these 20 customers over a 12-week period. We did it over and over again every week. Mm-hmm. got their feedback on, you know, firstly, did the flowers arrive? Yes, that's <laughs> yes. a good start. <laughs> were, were the flowers alive when they arrived? Yes, great, <laughs> two ticks. <laughs> but but really, uh, you, you know, worked with our customers to optimise and iterate the solution over a 12-week mm. period. We did things like, you know, at, at this time we were working in a co-working space and we we're on the third floor, so we'd go right up to the top of the stairs and we'd we'd throw the box with the flowers oh and the God. jar in from... <laughs> From the top flight of stairs <laughs> right down to the ground to, to see what happened because we we was we were so determined to make sure that, you know, the experience for customers when these flowers arrived on the doorstep, no matter how much they'd been thrown around in transport, if indeed that was what happened, mm. um, we wanted to make sure that the the product was still great and the integrity of the the experience wasn't damaged. So it actually only took us about twelve weeks to get to a point where we felt really confident that we had something we could roll out. We did. And and it was at that point, once we rolled it out and we got some volume behind the national offering, that we were able to test, um, test, I guess, from more of a quant perspective than a qual. And we've continued to iterate over the last three years. And now we've got a product um, that means we can ship nationally next day. We get a 98.6%, I think, is the current read on it, success rate of flowers arriving on time and in good condition. But what I would say is at the moment, it's only about 20% of our products that um, go through the mail. So that that is indeed the 20% of products where we can't truly control that last touch point when it arrives on people's door because we are working with people like Star Trek and Australia Post to, 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 to help us make this happen. It's the other 80% of deliveries which are all dispatched same day you order by 1pm, they arrive by 5pm and that's for metro areas. So that's in your Sydney, your Melbourne, your Brisbane, your Adelaide. We've got our own drivers that deliver those and it's those 80% of um, deliveries where we're able to manage every single touch point right up until it arriving on somebody's door. What a great story. I love that and I love that because it reminds me of something that one of our previous guests, mm. CJ Hendry said, which is true creativity comes from constraint and I think that that story is just such a great example of that. You had all of these constraints yes, and, you know, you came up with a solution that was effective and relatively affordable. I mean, sending them through the post and probably less complex than it could have been. 
Yeah, I think I think we were very lucky that our backgrounds gave us the right combination of skills and experience to tackle that problem in the right way. So we came from a creative background. You know, we spent our careers being paid to solve problems for clients. I was a strategist by trade. That's what I'd spent 10 years doing. So when you kind of have inherently flexed that problem-solving muscle for your whole career, it does allow you to tackle things in different ways and creative ways. And I think we were just very, very lucky that we had that set of skills and experience at our disposal. So we want to talk a little bit about marketing um, because, you know, your business since you launched has, you know, grown very significantly. And we're curious in the early days, maybe in the first 18 months, like what did you do to get the word out there? Well, I think talking about marketing sometimes a bit of a trap because I think people can tend to think about marketing in terms of marketing channels and marketing tactics. And I think... We thought about marketing in the early days. Uh, I sort of call it, think about it as foundational marketing. So for me, that's getting the name of your business right, getting the brand identity of your business right. It's about who your founders are. It's about who you hire. It's about the culture in your company. It's about how you treat your customers. So in the early days, it was much less about marketing channels and tactics and more about getting all of those foundational elements right to ensure that we had great product market fit because There's no point investing time, money and energy into scaling something that isn't a product that people love and want to engage with. So in the early days, it was all about um, investing a lot of time in things that wouldn't scale, having one-on-one contact with our customers. As I say, literally, you know, my business partner and I delivering things to people's doors Mm. ourselves to see what their reaction was. And that was our approach to marketing because we thought if we create a world-class product and customer experience, that is going to build a momentum of its own through things like positive word of mouth, through our social channels. We were also very lucky that we understood the power of brand and could build in, I guess, to our DNA and to our Mm. tone of voice, this playful cheekiness that still exists within the brand. So we we were using labels for our flower jars that said things like you lovely fucker you can still you can still have that as an option I should caveat and say it's purely optional there are many there are many phrases there are many lovely phrases you can choose from but we really understood the power of creating a tone of voice that stands out from the crowd and we were intentionally trying to do things that were different, that would help us build momentum. So when you're doing that, you do find that it creates this ripple effect, certainly through social channels in the early days where we got a lot of momentum and earned media without having to work that hard for it. And that was intentional because we, we were bootstrapping this company. We didn't have deep pockets. We didn't have a marketing budget to invest in paid media. And so that's certainly how we created some traction in the early days. But then, of course, like in every business, your marketing has to evolve as your business evolves. So Mm. we could only rely on the brand to get us so far for so long. And then it was all about focusing on acquisition. So how do we really grow our customer base? And again, with a limited budget, we did things like we collaborated with other up-and-coming brands that were more established than us, that had deeper pockets than us, but that we had, um, that we shared common brand values with. 
And through doing those collaborations, that again got us, you know, probably another six to 12 months of traction in the market. And that was with brands like Thank You. It was with brands like Zero and Vino Mofo, who were doing things differently in the space they were operating in. Um, and from there, it was then starting to experiment with paid media like Search, Affiliates, which has been brilliant for growing our audience, but increasingly what we're focusing on is how do we use marketing tactics to drive repeat purchase and how Mm. do we build meaningful customer relationships with people over time. So our marketing tactics have evolved so dramatically based on budgets, based on objectives, and and that would be the same for, for any startup or even mature business out there. These things have to evolve over the, over time. Can you talk us through one of your most successful collaborations and how you structured that, how you partnered with them um, and what you both got out of that process? Yeah, of course. We've done so many good collaborations over the years. I think one of the highlights for us was thank you approaching us in the first sort of year of launching the business. And it was funny because... We, we were scrambling in those early days to keep up with demand and we kept selling out of product. <laughs> and that was actually, in the end, what got us on the radar of thank you because I think it was that some of their staff had been trying to buy our product. They'd been trying to use our service and, they'd, <laughs> and we kept selling out. So they were like, God, these guys are killing it. They're so popular. And they had no <laughs> idea that behind the scenes, it was just because we had no idea what we were doing. We couldn't keep up with demand. It was Vez and I trying to make flowers and deliver them ourselves. But the perception was, you know, scarcity. <laughs> yes, <Yeah, laughs> <strange. laughs> these, guys, these guys are doing something so right. And so they wanted to work with us. And so we got on the radar of um, Justine and Dan Flynn, the founders mm. of Thank You. And so they approached us and they said, gee, we love what you guys are doing. And you guys must be killing it because you're a young business. You're constantly selling out. Could you work with us on our, on our Christmas gifts for our for our team? And that was that was an amazing moment because before we launched, lovely, um, my business partner and I had created a bit of a wish list of brands that you know mm. if we could work with brands that felt we felt had similar values to what to, to, to the values that we were creating. And thank you was number one on the list. And here they were <laughs> approaching us going, God, you guys are killing it. And they had no idea that behind the scenes, we were just like, you know, we, we were scrambling through. And yeah, so, swimming ducks. Yeah, swimming ducks, yeah. We were swimming, <laughs> totally. And so, you know, that wasn't our biggest collaboration mm-hmm. in terms of scale or... Um, you know, it didn't have a huge commercial outcome for Lovely, but it was definitely a moment in time, which was one of those validation points of we're doing something right. Mm. It's awesome that we're on these guys' radars. Um, And we've worked with Thank You numerous times since then on collaborations. So we've bundled their product with our offering. Um, That's worked extremely well. We've worked with them as a corporate client, creating gift bundles uh, for their employees. So we've had a great relationship with them from the start. God, I love those moments when you're just like, oh, Something happens like that. It's like a sign from the, the universe, universe and it's, it's like, okay, cool, we're on the right track. <laughs> so it was, good. it was, it was a good moment in time. You, um, you also t- spoke about customer retention. Like we know that it's it's cheaper to retain customers to continue selling your products to them. Um, you know, over um, acquiring new ones. I'm really interested. What are some of the tactics that have worked um, in order to retain your customers? And maybe you know, what are some of the surprise and delight moments that you offer them? too. Sure. So I think 
it goes back to having a really good foundational product. If you've got a great product and you've got great customer service, that's the first thing you need to be doing if you've got any hope of retaining customers. So it's not just about marketing tactics, (laughs) but you really need to deliver on something that's going to delight people. I think the second thing is the gifting. Gifting is an inherent human ritual. It goes back as far as time, right? As, As human beings, we want to connect with people We have rituals where we gift people every year, whether it's birthdays, whether it's anniversaries. So if we get that product and that customer service and the price point right, you know, in theory, there are occasions constantly throughout the year where customers should want to re-engage with Lovely. And it's about us making sure that we're doing a great job with our customer data to understand what are those moments in time that we should be re-engaging with our customers so that they do keep coming back every time that they need Um, a last minute gifting solution. So the first thing is, you know, understanding our customer data, when are the right moments in time throughout the year to re-engage with our customers. I think the second thing is, and, and we're only doing this more recently, but acknowledging and understanding what are the other opportunities in our customers' lives where it's relevant for Lovely to engage or provide a, a product or a service that goes beyond our, our usual gifting range. So to put that in context, um, and it's something that's happened quite organically, we realised that we had a number of customers who were coming back to us when they were getting married because they saw us as this really affordable flower solution for not just gifts, but for special events. And so what that enabled us to do was rethink how we could provide a product range and a service that wasn't just about last minute gifting, but was also about creating joy and happiness in those moments and occasions that were really important to our consumers, whether that was um, a wedding event, whether it was a christening event, but it it was more about being present at real life physical events. And the second way that we realized we could be, um, relevant and useful to our customers was through corporate gifting. So, and, you know, this spans all kinds of professions, but as as an example, if you're an office manager who's a customer of Lovely, we realised that they were coming back to us um, asking for help with gifting for new employees or work anniversaries, or if they had a Christmas event on, how do they provide gifts in high volumes to people? So, we, we, it's not just about re-engaging with our customers for those, you know, cyclical gifting opportunities like birthdays and anniversaries, but what are the other things that are happening in these people's lives where we can be useful and relevant? And weddings and corporate gifting are, are just two examples of those things. And it's enabled us to then rethink our product offering and service for those occasions and build out business units um, that are dedicated to delivering on those. So this year we've launched Lovely Weddings and Lovely Corporate and... Mm. Look, it's a challenging time during COVID, Mm, (laughs) certainly for weddings, Um, but it's been incredible how much traction we've been able to get so quickly despite all of the restrictions, which I think is is just validation post-COVID how relevant that service offering is for our current customer base. So we want to talk about the impact of COVID because, you know, it's been a pretty challenging time for a lot of businesses, I would say most businesses, um, you know, in various ways. And you are sort of, I guess, one of the lucky businesses in the sense that you've seen growth during COVID. So can you tell us a little bit about what your experience 
has been and, and the impact of the pandemic on Lovely? Sure. It's been the wildest ride for us. Like like any business owner or non-business owner, just just being a human being at the start mm. of COVID mm. in that coming into that first lockdown in Australia, we had absolutely no idea what it meant for our business, what the future was. It was high levels of anxiety on a personal level as well as a professional level. We didn't know whether revenue was going to drop off a cliff. We didn't even know if we could continue to operate our business. We didn't know if we'd need to stand staff down. But I'd say literally within 24 hours of that first lockdown, we realized that COVID for us was going to be a story of survive to thrive and sales just absolutely accelerated. We were experiencing up to 500% increase in sales volumes. And this this literally started to happen in a 24-hour window. So it was a, for that first week of lockdown, the entire team just went to ground. It was a case of roll your sleeves up, get product out. We're lucky that we had already built a foundation in our business that was scalable. So we had the infrastructure there. But of course, this was um, this was us really road testing it to its absolute limit because it's a very different thing when you're when you're doubling in size year on year to when you're suddenly experiencing five hundred percent growth over a six week period. So that first week was, you know, my business partner was making flowers again. She was, you know, day in day out. She was stood around the floristry bench with the teams, just trying to get flowers out of the business. I was on. I was helping the customer service team because they were stretched. I was on the phone all day, every day to customers, and it was a case of we're just going to do whatever we need to do around the clock to keep the lights on and keep the business going. So we were we were in the engine room, but I think what we quickly realised was that in a crisis like COVID, where nobody really knows what the implication is. Um, it's really important that you lift your head up as a leader away from the engine room and actually check what direction the train's going in because the wheels could have fallen off so quickly. So it was a very it was a very fine balancing act of being on the ground, helping the team at a very operational level to get that volume of gifts and flowers out. But at the same time, as a leader in the business, understanding the importance of pulling back from that, which is completely counterintuitive, because you just want to help the team and you want to get product out and you want to keep customers happy. But at the same time, I we had a totally new duty of care to our staff, to our customers. I was spending days and nights writing policy and procedure for COVID and how we were going to deal with that as a business. And nobody knew how to deal with that on any level, whether you're a business owner or you're not, not a business owner. But we were finding ourselves in this position where, you know, first and foremost, we need to keep our staff safe. We need to keep our customers safe. What does that look like? What policies are we introducing to make sure that that is a priority? We were introducing things like contactless delivery. So how do we still get gifts and flowers out to people, um, but without any interaction between our drivers and the end customer. There were so many problems that we needed to solve in such a short period of time. So it was this constant yo-yo of going to ground, helping the team, remembering that we still need to be leaders in the business and make sure that the train's not derailing. Um, The constant sort of mental gymnastics of forecasting out, financially forecasting out every scenario of how this could play out, making sure that, you know, we were having to invest in volumes of product that we'd simply never had to buy before. So 
cash flow suddenly becomes, I mean, cash flow is always a priority mm-hmm. for any business, but suddenly we're just dealing with a different level of challenges in the business that, we, that we'd never imagined we would have to be dealing with at this point in time. It's just crazy. I can't, can't imagine. I can't imagine the strain and the stress that that would have caused would have caused, you know. Well, (laughs) look, I mean, it it kind of makes me breathless talking about it, but at the same Mm. time, it was... It, it was completely, and it still is, because now we're into our second lockdown and we've experienced exactly the same thing. So it is totally exhilarating as a business owner to be working at the pace that we're working at, to be solving the macro level challenges that we're currently solving in many ways as a business owner. It's, it's an absolute dream. This mm. pandemic has afforded us yeah. opportunities for growth and opportunities mm. to solve problems which which will fundamentally change our business, will be a better business for this coming out of the pandemic for sure. So yes, it's challenging, but it's also, you know, just afforded us so many incredible opportunities. So I'm completely exhilarated um, and incredibly grateful that this has been Lovely's experience of COVID because I'm acutely aware that it's a very, very different experience right now mm. for lots of business owners out there. What did you, what have you learned about yourself and your team over the last few months experiencing the growth that you have during this crisis? I think, I think being in a crisis, it, it really, it, it brings out the best. It, well, it either brings out the best or the worst <laughs> yeah. in people. I think we're really lucky that it's absolutely brought out the best in our team. It's put people in, um, it's put us all into circumstances that are certainly uncomfortable and challenging. But out of that, we've really, um, we've been fiercely aligned as a group of uh, people at Lovely on what we're trying to do here. We've solved problems more quickly than we ever thought we would be able to solve them. So there's a sense of camaraderie and momentum. And like I said, exhilaration that's just never existed in the business before. So it's been, it's been, you know, for all the negativity and sadness around what's currently happening, absolutely, there's some silver linings to it as well for us. What do you think will be some of the things that you carry through post-COVID whenever that will be in terms of kind of the way that you have responded and operated or changed the way that you operate during this time? What do you think you will carry through or is it a case of that you'll carry through everything? I think we'll. I can't see us undoing any of the key changes we've made in the business. So one of the things that we had to do very quickly was extend our service offerings. So we realised, I'd say two weeks into the first lockdown, that our current five five day a week same day delivery offering wasn't enough. The customer demand was there to extend that to seven days a week. Now that was, we could have spent weeks, months, you know, maybe upwards of six months trying to figure out, it goes back to the question around the business plan and and (laughs) attention to detail at the very start of this conversation. We could have spent so long figuring out how to perfectly execute seven day a week delivery. And instead, we gave ourselves a week to figure out how do we make that happen? Um, because it was what our customers were asking us to do. So, you know, our kind of approach to this whole COVID thing was, 
our first priority is keeping our staff and customers safe. Our second mm-hmm. priority is listening to what our customers need and responding to that really quickly. Because ironically, there's never been a more relevant time for Lovely to exist. Mm-hmm. We're all about connecting people in moments of love and support. And suddenly we find the whole of Australia, or the whole of the world in a situation where we're anxious, we're separated from loved ones, people are isolated. Lovely is so relevant now in helping people connect in a way that really matters. So extending that service offering from five to seven days was a priority for us. Now, operationally, we're still dealing with lots of headaches, lots of Band-Aid solutions to make that happen. But what's most important is that from a consumer perspective, we're delivering on what they're asking us to deliver. Their experience of that seven-day-a-week delivery is great. So whatever pain points we're still ironing out behind the scenes to make that happen becomes irrelevant. We, we, it's absolutely our job to take all, on all of those operational burdens and challenges to make that happen. The most important thing is that in a, in a time of need, our customers were saying, you know, we need this service seven days a week. We made it happen. So that will absolutely be something that doesn't, you know, we're not going to roll back on that. It's been amazing for our business. And one of the great learnings that I, I hope we carry forward and don't forget is how quickly you can implement change in a business if you really need to. Mm. You don't need to agonize over the detail. And it's a real lesson in progress over perfection. The other thing that we'll absolutely um, take forward as a business, and we've just rewritten all of our employment contracts to reflect this, is remote working has been fantastic for our team. Now, clearly, what, the, the, mm-hmm. to a degree, there are parts of our business that will always need to be on the ground when you're mm-hmm. talking about arranging flowers, when you're talking about delivery. We can't move to a 100% remote working model, but there are large numbers of our team, probably... of our team are able to work remotely. It's been incredible. If anything, we've been more productive. (laughs) So, (laughs) and our our team have really enjoyed the opportunity to test and trial that and the fact that we were so supportive of that from day one. It's been great for culture. So, we've now built into all of our employment contracts, um, policy around flexible working, Moving from a five-day-a-week business to a seven-day-a-week business is a huge cultural change mm-hmm. and it's quite a difficult shift. But when when you sort of say to people, well, actually, that can afford you flexibility if you want it to because you can work five days out of any seven days you want and that can change every week if you need it to. It can be flexible around your lifestyle. And actually, we don't need you necessarily to work from nine to five. We just need you to do these things and make sure these things happen. So if on, you know, on a Monday that needs to happen between 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. and the next day that needs to happen between 7 a.m. and 2 p.m., actually, we don't really mind as long as we are delivering to our customers, as long as everybody's still fulfilling their roles. And so that's been a really positive thing for us and we will move forward. Um, we'll move forward with that as kind of standard practice for the team. I absolutely love that. Same. It's really exciting, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Like there are opportunities to change the way that we do business. Totally. And it's exciting to see some of the, the you know, smaller businesses, younger players come through and, and challenge how traditional business, you know, has been done. I think it's been brilliant because it's given us permission to, it's mm. given us permission to rewrite the rules. 
It's forced businesses to rewrite the rules and those businesses that can't rewrite the rules and afford that flexibility just aren't going to survive and thrive. So there's lots of opportunity for the smaller, more nimble businesses in the market to come out of this um, shining. What's the big picture vision for Lovely and has that changed after going through, you know, this period of insane rapid growth? Has that vision expanded? The vision hasn't changed. I think our timeline to get there has shortened, yeah. thankfully. <laughs> um, our vision has always been to be to, to build the most loved and most frequently used gift and flower delivery business in Australia and then the world. I think we this has helped accelerate some of the commercials around that growth. Um, currently, we're tracking almost two years ahead of where we thought we'd be given the spike in COVID. So no, the vision hasn't changed because I'll put, like I said, the purpose has been absolutely crystal clear from day one, but absolutely the train's moving a bit faster now. <laughs> hurtling forward. It. It's hurtling forward. Break, break speed. Yeah. <laughs> what are the Japanese bullet, uh, yeah. The Japanese yeah. bullet trains, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I, I wouldn't mind just jumping off for five minutes and then just yeah. getting having a, back Having on. a holiday. Yeah. Or yeah. a baby. Yeah. 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 All the things. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. So um, we're going to ask you a couple of final wrap-up questions. Um, this one we we ask uh, all of our guests. It's uh, to give a shout-out to another woman that's helped you. Now we know we probably can have a hazard of a guess of who you're going to shout-out to, but, um, yeah, we want to give you the opportunity to shout-out to another woman that's helped you. <laughs> well, you, you can't be a co-founder and not <laughs> shout-out to your female co-founder. You girls would know this more yeah, than anybody. Totally. We know. Oh, they'd yeah. be hell to pay. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, yeah, it would have to be my co-founder, Verity, who's my business partner in crime. Um, but honestly, I feel so I feel so grateful for all of the incredible female cheerleaders in my life. I think I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by a bunch of women who oftentimes have seen something in me that I didn't see in myself because as you know, as a building a business, there are so many moments of self-doubt and there are so many moments of can I do this or should I do this? And it's been the combination of those cheerleaders over the years that have really encouraged me to keep going and and really forced me to have um, the self-belief in myself that I needed to keep this thing moving forward. So I'd, I'd do a shout out to all of the cheerleaders in my life and they know exactly who they are. What's other than a holiday... <laughs> Other than a holiday, what's one thing that you really need right now? Well, I think we all need a vaccination. Yeah, true. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> for COVID, true. I think that would that would that would be. Um, I, I and I think it's it's hard to selfishly think about what you need right now when mm. the world is in the situation it's in. So you know, I I think that's the thing. We all we all need a solution. We all, whether that's a vaccination. Um, I don't know what the solution looks like, but there's there's a much bigger picture going on at the moment, which makes it really difficult to think individually about what is it that I need right now. Yeah, yeah, completely fair. And lastly, um, we'd love you to share, a, you know, your best piece of advice. Um, I suppose, you know, for those people that are struggling, there's a lot of business owners and just a lot of individuals that are struggling right now. Um, so a piece of advice that will put a smile on their face. The best piece of advice I've ever been given professionally, no, actually personally, just general life advice I've been given was do what scares you. Mm -hmm. And I think 
that for me has been a piece of advice I've gone back to time and time again and has helped me make decisions that have ultimately led to the most fulfilling and exhilarating outcomes in my life. It's definitely taught me that happiness, it's true that happiness lies just beyond your comfort zone. And the amazing thing about doing things that scare you is it it builds a level of courage and resilience, which only gives you more ability to lean into difficult situations and to continue over time to saying yes to things and situations that scare you. So I think certainly at the moment we're, we're in a time that is scary for everybody, but I think realising the beautiful things that can come out the other side of that, and that is, you know, really flexing this muscle of courage and resilience and the the doors that that opens for you. We love that. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. It's really heartwarming to see a business doing well during this time, creating jobs and changing the way that they do business. A couple of things that we're thinking about after this chat. So we both come from a brand background and we totally agree with Hannah about the fact that building the fundamentals of your brand, your vision, your purpose, your values, your brand personality is such a critical piece of the puzzle. You can invest tons of time, tons of effort, tons of cash in marketing efforts like advertising, collaborations, PR, but unless you have a really strong, clear and unique brand, you might not get momentum. There is so much power in brand. We literally cannot say this enough. An epic brand does heaps of the heavy lifting for you. And when you also have a high quality product that customers love, it'll basically sell itself. Hannah also showed us that being a leader, a boss, or even a manager is bloody hard work. It's a constant balance of being in the trenches with your team and looking up to make sure that you're heading in the right direction. Stepping back from the business can be hard, but sometimes it's the very best thing that you can do for your team, for yourself and for the business. And lastly, we really, really hope this app has shown you that from moments of intense stress, anxiety and challenge, like we're all experiencing right now, true growth and true progress can be made. Some of the most incredible periods of growth, not just in business, but also personally, come from hardships like this. Lovely has shown us that collectively, we can find a new way forward. We'd really love to hear your response to this episode. So please come and join us in our Facebook group, The Lady Brains Clubhouse, and we hope you stay safe. Ladyland is a Podcast One Australia production. The producer is Brooke Carrigan, audio production by Matt Nikolich. For more great podcasts, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.